Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want to open us up with a word of prayer before we dive into God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. I'm grateful for the power that it has in our lives. I'm grateful for the blessing that it is to us to show us the way back into relationship with you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would see the authority of the word, that we would place it as first and foremost in our life, and that we would conform our lives to your will, which we find in these pages, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So last week, we jumped back into 1 Corinthians. We took a break through the Advent season and through uh, New Year's. But last week, uh, we jumped into 1 Corinthians 5, where we saw Paul address an issue that was happening in the church, and that issue astonished him. So there was a guy in the church that had a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and Paul just could not believe that the church was allowing this to happen. Right? He was blown away by it. He said that not even the pagans would allow something like this to happen around them, and yet instead of doing something about it, instead of, instead of dealing with the issue, uh, he says that the church was arrogant about it. They were celebrating the freedom that he had to do this in Christ. And Paul says, no, we're not supposed to be celebrating this. He wants the guy removed from the church in hopes that two things will happen. The first is that he hopes that the man might realize through this action, through this punitive action, that he is not a believer in Christ. Paul wants him to realize that he is separated from God, that these actions show that he does not have a redeemed heart, and he wants this man to put his faith and trust in Jesus for the salvation of his sins, thereby saving his soul. And by the church not kicking this man out, they are affirming his salvation. They're saying, no, 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 we believe that you're a Christian, and we're celebrating what you're doing in this. And Paul says, no, no, that's not how the church should be. We do not celebrate sinful actions. Paul also hopes that by removing this man from the church, it will help to protect the reputation of the church. The reason is that the church is supposed to look different from the world. It's supposed to look different from the world, and here they're celebrating an egregious sin that even the secular world itself looks at in disgust. And you're tarnishing the reputation of the church by doing this. And he's just saying, essentially, if we don't look different than the world around us, or if we look worse than the world, then what is the point of being the church? Why come here if we don't look any different than the world? What's the point of being here? So Paul says, protect this man's soul by not acknowledging his salvation. Remove him from membership of the church. And also protect the reputation of the church by showing, no, we do have standards that we find in God's word and we're going to stand by those standards. We're not going to celebrate sinful actions. And this week, we're going to see Paul again address an issue within the church that also shocks him. But honestly, I would be surprised if you thought this issue was as big of a deal as Paul does. Now, the issue we're looking at in verses 1 through 11, which Scott read for us, is that members of the church are taking other members of the church to court and they're suing them through the judicial system of Corinth. 
And the reason why I would be surprised if you thought this was as big of a deal as Paul does is that is because we live in a very litigious society. We are in a culture that is prone to lawsuits for any and everything. So we're probably more desensitized to the idea of a lawsuit than we are to the idea of, having, of someone having a sexual relationship with their stepmother. Right, so we may look at this and we may something, say something along the lines of Paul. One of these things is not like the other. Right? Sometimes there are issues we would think that need to be addressed in court because someone has done something objectively wrong to us or maybe even subjectively wrong and we just can't stand for that. Justice must be done. And sometimes those people that do those things are within the church and they must be held accountable for what they have done to me. And from a worldly perspective, this makes perfect sense. Right? For those who do not have a reconciled relationship with God, where else are they going to experience justice? Right? Who else has the authority to address the issue if it's not a judge? There's nowhere else for them to go. So of course the world would take all of these issues before the court. But in the case of two Christians who are at odds with each other, these issues should be brought before the church. Right, the church should have enough authority in the life of each believer that when the church points to the Word of God, to the church who properly interprets the Word of God and says that this should be done, that should be enough to settle the issue between two Christians on either side of the dispute. So if you come here and we've got wise people listening to the issue that you and someone else has, and we point to the Word of God and we say, hey, this is what God's Word says, we interpret that correctly, we're not taking the stuff out of context, then no matter which side of that dispute you're on, the side that we side with or the side that we side against, you should be willing to accept what we say because it's coming from the Word of God. The Word of God should have that authority in your life, and the church should also have that authority in your life. Now, I do want to be clear here, though, that Paul is not addressing criminal cases here. Right? He's not talking about murder. He's not talking about rape. He's not talking about abuse or theft or anything like that. For those things, you should go to jail. If you come in here and say, Chris, I'm having issues. I'm being physically abusive with my wife. You're going to jail. That's all there is to it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and try to arbitrate between you and your spouse. I'm going to call the police, and I'm going to testify that you told me that you were being physically abusive to your wife, and you're going to jail. Right? This is not a Catholic confessional. If you, com if you confess a crime to me, I will be sitting in the... The testimonial stand in the courtroom for you. You will go to jail. He's not talking about criminal cases here. This is things like you accidentally put your property line, your fence on the property line of someone else at the church. Right? Maybe your dog got loose and killed one of my chickens. Right? A good example of this, I actually had something like this happen to me many years ago uh, when I was the intern. As the youth pastor at Grove Park Church, one night as we were leaving the service, one of the girls in the church did some kind of a weird turn out of the parking lot and backed directly into my car. That left a huge softball-sized dent in the corner panel, and the parents were kind. They understood that, I mean, obviously she's at fault here, and they paid me to have it fixed, but what if they didn't? 
This is the kind of stuff that Paul is talking about here. What should I have taken? If they didn't pay the $400 estimate that, that it costs to get it fixed, if they didn't pay that, should I then take them to court and make them pay it? This is the kind of stuff that Paul is saying he is talking about here. And he's going to say, no, you shouldn't take it to before the court. He's saying you should take it before the church. And he's shocked. I mean, the language is strong throughout this whole section. He's shocked that the Corinthians aren't doing that. He cannot believe that they would rather go before a pagan judge than uh, present the issue to the wise members of the church. Right? He's not saying take it before the youth group. He's saying take it before member, wise members who have been walking with God for a long time. If you look at the, what Paul has to say here again, listen closely to the language as I read through this again. He says, if any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul says that he cannot fathom that they would be willing to do this. How dare you take these issues to an unrighteous court instead of taking it before the saints? I mean... That's strong language. Obviously, Paul is very upset by this. And the reason why he's upset by this is because it's showing that the Corinthian church has a lack of respect for the authority of the church. And that's a problem. That's a problem if we don't respect the authority of the church. If the church is based on the Word of God, If we preach and teach from the Word of God, there should be a certain amount of authority that the church has in our life because we're preaching and teaching from the truth. If that's how we make our decisions, if that's how we become wise, then we should honor that in the lives of the church. In verses 2 and 3, Paul points out what the church can expect in their future as co-heirs with Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, we are given the status of Jesus before God the Father. In Romans 8, 16 and 17, Paul tells us this, The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. 
This means that we have the same standing as Christ in the kingdom when he returns and resets all of creation. We will sit with him in judgment over the unbelieving world. Paul even says we will sit with him in judgment of the angels that rebelled against God and became demons. And he's saying knowing this, knowing your future for this in the church, Paul says you're going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels, and you can't handle a property dispute. You can't handle someone's dog killing your chicken. Like you can't work that out for yourself. All right, you can't handle someone not paying for a service provided by someone else. You can't work through someone backing into your car. You don't have, you don't have the ability to do that. You would rather appoint someone who has no share in God's kingdom to be the arbitrator of this issue. Paul says this is shameful. Here we are back to the issue of spiritual maturity that Paul discussed in the first four chapters of this letter. He thinks that they should be further along in their walk with Christ than this. Paul asks in verse 5, can it really be that you have no one wise among the entire church who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers. So let's just put aside the fact that you've got two believers that are squabbling with each other over an issue. All right, we'll put that aside. How is it possible, he's saying, that you've been walking with Christ now for three or four years, and in that time, no one in the church has developed the wisdom to walk the church through these issues? Three or four years in, Nobody has the wisdom to address these issues. Instead, you would rather go before unbelievers and you would rather show them the weakness of the church and you would rather show them the weakness of your faith. And he's saying that is shameful. And now you may be asking, how does this show the weakness of the church and how does it show the weakness of our faith? Well, I've got three points that I want to look at quickly. First off, you're showing the world that you're willing to enter into petty squabbles publicly for the world to see. If we're followers of Christ, we're supposed to be changed people. He's going to mention that later in this section. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have conflicts with other people, but it should change how we behave during those conflicts with other people. Right? Two Christians arguing should not look like two non-believers arguing. Taking people to court is how the world acts. This is not how the people of God should act. At the very least, this should not be our first instinct. Right? Somebody crosses me, someone does something that I don't like, my first instinct should not be to call my lawyer. We're getting ready to go to court. That should not be my first thought. We should seek to address every issue that pops up like this in the same way that we would address church disciplinary issues. Now, I'm not saying all of these are church disciplinary issues. I'm just saying we should approach it in the same way. We should, first of all, go to someone that we feel has wronged us, and we should talk to them about it first. And if that doesn't work out, then we should grab one or two wise people from the church, and we should then go try to talk to them about that again. And if that doesn't pan out, then we should present it before the church and have more wise people go and talk to these people about this issue. And again, I'm, this is probably going to stop here. Church discipline is about an ongoing public sin. So if one person has an issue at one time, and it, it's not 
again, abuse or murder or rape, then maybe this is a, a one-off and we should just, we have to let it go at that point. But if this is an ongoing thing, right, if you are constantly not paying for services that people are giving you, then it's showing that you have a heart that's not aligned with the things of God. But for one time, we should go and have that conversation. We should bring one or two more if we can't solve it that way, and we should present it to the church if it doesn't work out that way. But we're showing, right, that we're willing, if we're willing to get into these petty squabbles, it's showing something about our heart. And if we're constantly getting into these petty squabbles, it's showing that either we have incredibly weak faith or no faith at all. The second thing that I want to point out here is that in pursuing this course of action, you're showing that you have no understanding of what Christ did in coming to earth and taught through his ministry. Right? So in Christ coming to earth, that means he stepped out of glory. That means in, in a place where he's got angels flying around his throne calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He chooses to step out of that. He chooses to put on the weakness of our flesh, experiencing all the difficulties of our lives. And then he laid down his rights as the creator of the universe in order to sacrifice himself for us. I mean, imagine the thought of the creator of the universe being smacked in the face. Imagine the thought of the creator of the universe having his beard plucked out. Imagine the thought of having the creator of the universe nailed to a cross and then asking for forgiveness for those who nailed him there. This is the life that Christ taught us to live. Paul in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 encourages us to have the same attitude of that as Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how we're supposed to live our lives. We're supposed to live in humility. We should not be beating our chest demanding that we get our rights met, that we find justice in this life. Jesus was willing to take on our injustice, the injustice of us all, the greatest injustice in the history of existence. He was willing to take that and offer forgiveness for those who would put him through that. And he's saying we should have this same attitude. And the last thing here. In taking these issues to the court, you're saying that the church is helpless in these types of situations. You're saying that the church has no authority in my life when we bypass the church and go to the court. You're, you're saying, in fact, the church has no authority at all. You're saying, I do not make, I don't trust them to make the right call here. And, or the other side of that, you're saying, I do not submit to them if they make the call that I don't like. This is the things that we're proclaiming when we jump out of the church and we run to the court. Paul says in verse 7 that no matter what the court says about your situation, you have already lost. 
Whether you win your court case or whether you lose your court case, you have already lost. To have legal disputes between members of the church is a loss for the church. It's a victory for Satan. It's a victory in his efforts to undermine the church when we have to go around the church to present this before a judge. He said, you've already lost. It doesn't matter if they sign off in your favor and you get that $400 in your pocket. You lost. Paul says, why not just take it on the chin instead? And I don't know about you, but the idea of that wells something up in my chest. Like I said, I, I str- I've admitted this many times in the, in the years that I've been here. I struggle with vengeance. I struggle with the, the desire to get even, and not just even, but above and beyond even so that you don't make that mistake twice. That is a, a, a battle that I deal with on every single day. And Paul says, why not just take it on the chin instead? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? He says, it doesn't matter if you win the case. You've already lost what matters. And besides this, winning in the kingdom of God looks different than winning in this world. So remember when it says, what what do you gain if you gain the world but lose your soul? Right? If you have succeeded and getting that $400 or the chicken replaced or you get the fence moved, what have you really gained? That's not what winning in the kingdom looks like. Winning in the kingdom looks like what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 11. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, their, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets before you. In that, did he say, blessed are those who decimate their brothers and sisters in the courtroom? No. Blessed are those who get every last cent that they are owed? No. Blessed are those who air their grievances out into the world before the pagans? No. No, he didn't say any of that. He said, blessed are the humble. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who make peace, who strive for peace. And Jesus goes on in chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a hard teaching for me. I admit that I struggle with this on a regular basis. But Jesus is going to tell us that even when we are wronged, it is not worth going to the extent of every ounce of the law to get what we are owed. He says, if you're struck, turn the other cheek. If someone wants to sue you, give them more than what they've asked for. And I know this goes against everything in us, but we have to understand that there is a sense of justice that will come about at the end. Not necessarily in this life, but we know for a fact that none of this is overlooked in God's kingdom. It's not going unnoticed. And when we are willing to put down our rights, we are showing that we are in line with the mind of Christ. We are showing that we are following him and that that relationship with him means more to us than anything else in this world. And to wrap up this morning, in verses 9 to 11, Paul reminds us of the difference between those who are in the world and those who have been called out of the world. There he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? So he's setting up a dichotomy here. He's saying there are these people and then there are these people. He's saying, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. He's saying, if this is your life, if this is how you act, know that you are not in God's kingdom. And you can know that you have a heart like that if you're willing to pursue these issues in court because you're showing that you have no understanding of who Jesus is or what Jesus has done. And he's saying, and you used to be like this. He's saying that now that you have come to faith in Christ, there is a difference in you. You are no longer like these people. You have taken off the old man, and you've put on the new. You have decided to walk in the righteousness of Christ. You have decided to lay certain aspects of your life down so that you can show the humility of Christ. It says here that some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Think about these words that he's used here, you were washed. You have been cleansed of all that stuff that you used to be. He says you were sanctified. You were made into the image of Christ. And justified is a legal term. He's saying you are no longer guilty before the creator of the world. He says you need to act like that. You need to live out of that. Out of the new creation who you are in Christ. That's how we should live. So, for application purposes, are you struggling with spiritual immaturity, evidenced by how you handle yourself in the church and in the world? Is your first gut instinct, if someone says something that you don't like about you in the church, do you run and go call your lawyer? If your neighbor's with somebody in the church and they've done something that caused issues with your property, are you running over and calling your lawyer? If someone has run into your car, are you talking to them about it, bringing it before the church, or are you running and talking to your lawyer? We can see 
the evidence of how you feel about the church. We can see the evidence of your heart based on how you handle yourself in the church and how you handle yourself in the world. And then the second question that I have for you is how much authority does the church have in your life? Right? If someone in the church comes before you and they see something in your life that goes against the word of God and they present that to you, do you tell them to shove off? Or are you willing to listen to what they have to say? Are you willing to take a dispute between two members of this church and come before wise people of the church and let them handle the dispute? Are you willing to submit to whatever decision comes up? Or is this just maybe your first stop on the way to the courtroom? If you don't give me the answer that I want, the court will give me maybe give me the answer that I want. How much authority does the church have in your life? Right? Are you willing to let someone speak into your life? Or are you going to wall that up and close that off so that nobody has access to who you are or to your heart? If we're willing to do that, that says a lot about us. That says a lot about our heart. And it could say so much that it means that we're not a believer in Christ. So I would challenge you today, if you are, if you are willing to push the church back and not have any care in the world for what God's people say from God's word, I would be concerned. I would not rest easy in my salvation if that's the condition of my heart. How are you doing today? Are you willing to listen to the church? Are you willing to follow what God's word says no matter what it says? Something to think about as we leave today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word that you've given us. Lord, I pray that we would have a desire to grow deeper and deeper in it. Lord, that we would formulate everything we do as the church from your word. And Lord, that we would be people who have a desire uh, to give authority to the church. Lord, I pray that you would provide us with wise people who are, are able to discern your word and to, to speak into issues like this that might arise. And Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are willing to submit to the decisions that the church would make. As if there are two believers that are having a problem, I pray that their hearts would be willing to submit to whatever the church says. Lord, help us to, to navigate these issues in, in a way that brings you honor and glory in all that we think, say, and do. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.